as we are working through our All for One series in the book of Ephesians. We have made the transition recently from our position in Christ, who we are, our identity, all that God has done to bring us from death to life. And we've transitioned into the second half of the book, focusing on what it means to walk in Christ, to walk worthy of the calling that we have received. So we've gone from our position in Christ to our practice. As we are uh, moving forward into this, I have a very important question for you. What do you do with your garbage? What do you, what do, you do with the stuff that you, you no longer need? That spoiled food from the back of the fridge? Don't act like you don't have it. You all got it. You pull it out and it's expired. Oh man, I forgot that was in there. That unidentifiable gross stuff you found in your kid's bedroom? Yuck. That pillow that your dog got a hold of and did things to that polite people don't describe, particularly in church. You throw them away, right? Because they're no longer fit for use. Have you ever walked into your kitchen and thought, ugh, what does that smell? Y'all are just very still, like, that's never happened to me, or at least I'm going to pretend it's never happened to me while I'm sitting in church. You know what I'm talking about, right? You walk in and it's like, oh my goodness, I cannot eat in this place. That reeks. You realize after a little while of trying to figure this out, it's the trash can. It's where you threw that stuff away that was the spoiled food, the unidentifiable gross stuff. And it's in the trash can, and whatever yuck is still in there is stinking up the whole place. In Ephesians 4, verses 25 to 32, really we're, we're looking at this whole second half of the chapter from 17 on. Paul is telling the church in and around Ephesus, and God is telling us today, that if you don't take out the trash, that old garbage is going to stink up the whole house. As he develops his thoughts from verses 17 to 24, we see this reality in 25 to 32. A life that fits a child of God involves conduct that reflects the reality of Christ. Let me read it again. I want to make sure you got it in your head as we're working through this. This is all bouncing out of what he's previously said. Our core reality is a life that fits a child of God involves conduct that reflects the reality of Christ. If God has made me alive in Christ, then my daily living must reflect that reality. For my conduct, my behavior, the things that I do to reflect the reality of Christ and my new life in Him I need to take out the trash of my old life. That old me has nothing to do with the new me. Now, understand as we're going into this that we're not talking here about cleaning up and living a better life so that God will accept you. We're not, we're not talking about working up your religious piety. You're gaining better reputation or having some sort of magical faith talk so that you can fix your problems and live your best life now. What we're talking about is dying to yourself to be resurrected by Christ. 
receiving by faith the good news that Jesus took all of God's wrath for you on his cross so that you could be raised to new life in him. As a new creation, the old you has passed away. It's time to put off the old, put on the new, as God gives you a new outlook through his spirit and his word. So as we get started here, there are four areas that we want to see of putting off the old self in this passage. All right. First, as we're looking at putting off the old self, what are we going to get rid of? As we take out the trash, we take the old junk that no longer is useful, that's no longer part of who we are, what do we do with it? First, we need to focus on dumping dishonesty. Dumping dishonesty. Take a look in the passage at uh, verse 25. In fact, before we even do that, let me back up, because I don't want you to miss how this comes through the entire passage. All right, I'm going to read the beginning, then I'm going to jump down to 17. Paul says, As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Jump down to verse 17. So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their thinking. They're darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God, because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they're full of greed, or the better rendering, they're greedy for more. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in Him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. And here we find today's passage. Therefore, in light of all this stuff, each of you must put off falsehood. And speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. You may remember in Exodus 20 in the Ten Commandments that we're called not to give false testimony. We'll develop this a little bit more next week as we get into this idea of dumping dishonesty. But understand that if I'm going to dump this dishonesty, I need to, I need to get down into the roots of it. And I need to understand that we, together, as the church, belong together. In fact, in Christ, we are one body. Love speaks truth. This is the calling that he gives us uh, earlier in the chapter when he says that we are to be speaking the truth in love. In Christ, we are one body. Love speaks truth. The Lord hates a liar. We all do, don't we? 
Does anybody tell me, raise your hand if you love a liar. Nobody, right? Say amen if you hate a liar. There's nothing good about it. Well, at least when that liar is somebody else. However, when you and I are the liar, we tend to justify it, to explain it away, convincing ourselves that it wasn't really dishonesty because fill in the blank. Well, you know, that information was a need-to-know basis, and they didn't know. They didn't need to know, right? Or it's just a little white lie. Or uh, I'm lying so that they don't get hurt. I don't want to hurt them. Therefore, I'm going to not really lie, but maybe I'll shade the truth. Maybe I'll just tell part of the truth. Suddenly, when we begin to look at the liar that way, we don't hate him quite as much. Paul, as he is uh, dealing with this, is pointing the finger at you and me, not at that other person out there, that, that lawyer, politician. We like to make jokes about them, right? But we're a lot of softer on the person in the mirror. The Lord detests lying lips or deeds or keyboards or silence. As I said, we'll develop this more next week, but, but we recognize the overt lie as a lie, right? Saying something we know is untrue, we can all recognize that that's a lie. It's not hard for us to understand that we can do things without words that mislead. We don't have to say anything, but we take actions or we set up a situation to create a certain perception, but it's still a lie. We often perpetrate falsehood on social media, both overtly and more subtly by sharing or retweeting things that aren't necessarily false, but that color or shade the truth. Sometimes by sharing statistics or claims that somebody else put out there. It's not my lie, it's their lie. Without taking the time to look deeper into whether or not it's actually right. But did you know that we often lie through our silence as well? When we fail to say what God wants said, when we fail to speak up about the reality of sin, judgment, and salvation in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, our silence is telling the world around us that they are just fine. It's good, it's fine, it's okay. Christ is optional. There's lots of different ways. If you're a good person, well, then I'm sure that you're a Christian. I'm sure that, that God is going to look on you favorably, and you're okay, and I'm okay. We're all okay. This is a lie. Our silence, in this case, is a lie. When we tacitly support our neighbor in their sin, by not speaking up, by not saying anything, when we tacitly support them with our silence, we are harming them, not loving them. This is especially important within the church. The 
because we're one in Christ. This is the emphasis that, that Paul gives here. As we look at these things, there, and, and we'll, we'll see it again as we develop them more, but what we're seeing is that there is a specific motivation within the body of Christ to live these things out. He's talking to Christians in their dealing with Christians. Stop lying to one another. Stop being false, being duplicitous. Stop putting up a false front. Stop pretending you're someone you're not. But speak truthfully to one another. Why? Because we are one body in Christ. If I am false with you, I'm really lying to myself. And I'm attempting to lie to God because Christ is the head of the body. There's no place in the church for a dishonest heart, a dishonest lifestyle. Turn, if you would, to Colossians chapter 3. If you're in Ephesians, it's just a few pages past it. Jump over Philippians. Colossians chapter 3, we'll start with verse 5. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways. That's exactly what he's saying to, to the church at Ephesus, right? You used to walk in these ways. This used to be normal for you. This used to be who you were, but it's not anymore. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge, in the image of its creator, this is the power that we have. We are new. Because we are new, the old things don't belong anymore. We've taken off that old clothes. In Luke 16.10, the Lord tells us that he who is faithful in much is faithful, or faithful in little is faithful in much, and he who is dishonest in little is dishonest in much. The little falsehoods, the little lies, the little false pretense. It reveals our character. It reveals who we are. And if we're in Christ, there's no place for that in us. We need to dump that dishonesty. When I allow any form of dishonesty in my life, or I neglect truth that needs to be spoken, I am not walking worthy of who I am in Christ. Now, I don't have blanks for you to fill in there, but I'm going to read it again because I want you to get this into your head. When I allow any form of dishonesty in my life or I neglect truth that needs to be spoken, I am not walking worthy of who I am in Christ. Dump that dishonesty. Second, <clears throat> excuse me, we need to take a look at removing resentment. Removing resentment. 
Back in those Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, we see that thou shalt not murder. That seems pretty good, right? You know, we can all pretty much look at that and say, yeah, I'm pretty glad that that's in there. Turn, if you would, to Matthew chapter 5. You may want to stick something in Matthew chapter 5. We'll be back in this neighborhood again. Most of us are familiar, at least in the name, with the Sermon on the Mount. Here in Matthew 5, Jesus has something to say about that commandment, Thou shalt not murder. Starting with verse 21, our Lord says, You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, You shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be judged, subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, that's a, a, a form of foul cursing in that Aramaic. If, it, if anyone does that, they're answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Sometimes we get hung up on the, the literal legalistic aspects of this. His point is much bigger, much broader, much deeper. What he's saying is, this murder command is not just what you do with your hands, but the murder you commit in your heart. Things like character assassination, slander. When I stab you with my words and my actions, maybe not with my knife, it's still murder in your heart. Jesus goes much deeper. He goes much broader. He continues in verse 23. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them and then come and offer your gift. In other words, don't try to, don't try to get lost in worship. Don't try to approach God until you've approached one another to make it right. Whatever is wrong, set it right, because your heart is blocked. It's far from God while these things hang between you. He continues, settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court, verse 25. Do it while you're still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you've paid the last penny. This echoes what Jesus says elsewhere about forgiving others as the Lord's forgiven us. If we are people of grace, if we have experienced God's forgiveness for our unpayable sin debt, how dare we, as broken, poor, wretched sinners, hold against other poor, broken, wretched sinners their petty crimes against us. Not saying it's not wrong, but how dare we try to collect that debt when we have been forgiven so much more than we could even imagine. Removing resentment. As he, uh, as he says this in chapter 4, verses 26 and 27, He's already said, therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor for all members of one body. 
not Bobby. I don't know who Bobby is. Bobby, if you're listening, I'm sorry. We are all members of one body, verse 26. He quotes here Psalm 4. In your anger, do not sin. Now your translation may say, be angry and do not sin, as we see in Psalm 4. He continues, do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry. Do not give the devil a foothold. Sometimes we get trapped in the words. I like the NIV's rendering here. In your anger, do not sin. It's more literal to say, be angry and do not sin. But the connotation is clear. Anger happens. Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad. But when you get angry, and you will, don't let it drive. Don't let it control you. Mark this. When I let anger drive, the devil hijacks the car. When I let anger drive, the devil hijacks the car. Very often as Christians, we don't really know how to handle anger. We get hyper-focused on just a particular facet facet of the Bible's teaching on anger, allowing extremes to govern our thinking. We hear Jesus say to turn the other cheek, and then we ignore his passionate anger over sin and injustice. We're called to certain kinds of anger. That's an interesting thing. But we focus in on that, and then we become passive. Or perhaps we embrace David's prayers for God's retribution toward his enemies. And in so doing, we forget that we have been called as Christ followers to love our enemies and to win them to Christ. How am I going to do that if I'm seeking retribution? We need to look at the whole counsel of God, not just bits and pieces. This is where confusion comes in what paul is saying here is not you should never speak up you should never speak your mind you should not feel angry you should not hate sin obviously that's not in keeping with what we read in the scriptures elsewhere he's acknowledging this he's acknowledging the the anger that comes up he acknowledges anger in the christian and admonishes believers to not allow it to cause them to sin. When I let anger drive, the devil hijacks the car. He points out that when we give anger the wheel, we're really putting Satan in the driver's seat. If I let that anger settle into my heart and it changes my motives, now maybe I I stifle it, right? I, I, I keep it suppressed. I put it in a box and I lock the box and I put the box on the shelf. The devil knows where to get that box. And he takes that anger out. To quote from a Christian singer from the 80s who died not too long ago, some people say, let it out. Some people say, hold it in. But Jesus said to crucify it. For that thing there is sin. We need to put to death that sin. We need to slay the zombies that try to regain their animation in our lives so that we're not driven by this anger. 
He points out that, that when we give anger the wheel, we're really putting Satan in the driver's seat. He hijacks the car. We're giving him a foothold, a handle in our lives. Now, whether anger is sinful in a particular situation has much to do with context. Why am I angry? What is it that's got me angry? How do I act in response to that anger? Is my anger motivated by love and truth or by my pride and selfishness? Have I let my anger become bitterness and resentment in my heart? The book of Proverbs says a lot about this. Let's quickly turn there. Just take a, a little quick spin. We won't even begin to hit all of it. But turn to Proverbs chapter 14. We'll start there. Proverbs chapter 14. When you get there, find verse 17. Notice what we have here. A quick-tempered person does foolish things, and the one who devises evil schemes is hated. Flip the page to chapter 15. Look at verse 1. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Same chapter, jump down to verse 18. A hot-tempered person stirs up conflict, but the one who is patient calms a quarrel. While we're in Proverbs, let's go to chapter 29. Chapter 29, verse 11. Fools give full vent to their rage. Notice, it doesn't say that fools get angry. Fools give full vent to their rage, but the wise bring calm in the end. Move a little bit farther in that chapter to verse 22. An angry person stirs up conflict, and a hot-tempered person commits many sins. So much more to say here. Let's take a look at James. We'll go from the Old Testament to the New Testament. We'll be back in James again later as well. We just memorized this, ver this passage recently, so hopefully it's fresh in your minds. James chapter 1. Starting with verse 19, James writes, My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. He continues, therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Flip back to the book of Romans. Look at chapter 12 there. Romans chapter 12. You're going back to the left, past Ephesians. We get to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You went a little too far. You get to Acts. You're a little far, but you're close. Romans chapter 12. <clears throat> At the beginning of this chapter, he says, in light of everything else that he said, that we as Christ followers ought to offer our bodies, our lives, as a living sacrifice, 
holy and pleasing to God as true and proper worship. He says that we should not be conformed to the pattern of this world. In other words, we don't think like the world, we don't act like the world, we don't talk like the world, we don't seek justice the same way the world does, we don't seek revenge as the world does. Instead, we are to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Same thing Paul says in <coughs> Ephesus, get a new attitude, receive that new outlook, <clears throat> and then we'll be able to test and approve God's good, pleasing, and perfect will. We're going to take a look at verses 17 and following. With those things in mind, Paul says, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Now, understand what he's saying here. He's not saying that you go along to get along when he says do what is right in the eyes of everyone. He's not saying do what is right in the eyes of those who don't know what is right. He's saying follow what is right and true and make sure that you're treating people right. You're treating people in a way that they feel the gospel lived out. So when we speak truth, we speak truth in love, in a loving manner, from a loving motive. But we don't deny truth. We never run away from it. Therefore, sometimes it's not possible for us to live at peace with everyone, which is why Paul says in 18, if it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. In other words, you're trying to pour out your wrath on that enemy, if you will. James says, whoa, 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 slow down. Your anger doesn't produce the righteous life that God requires. Here, Paul says, don't take revenge. Leave room for God's wrath against that injustice, because God is a perfect judge. He continues, for it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I don't want to take a lot of time on it, but I just want to point out, if your motive is to heap burning coals on his head, then you're doing it wrong, right? So let's make sure that we're checking that. Notice this. When I allow anger to distract me from my mission as an ambassador of Christ, I am not walking worthy of who I am in Christ. When my anger takes hold of me and it gets my focus on that person's wrongdoing rather than on the fact that that person either needs Jesus or is a brother or sister in Jesus, if I lose sight of the fact that my reason for being on the planet is to reflect the reality of Christ through relationships, my anger steers me away from that, then I have lost the plot. When I allow anger to distract me from my mission as an ambassador of Christ, I'm not walking worthy of who I am in Christ. We've talked about dumping dishonesty and removing resentment. Let's take a look at verse 28, and we'll talk about getting rid of greed. Getting rid of greed.
starting with 25, each of you must put off falsehood, speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we're all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. 28, our focus here. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. Hmm. So as we are dealing with these things, we see them reflected or, or, or reflecting God's will in the Ten Commandments. Again, back in Exodus 20, we're told, Thou shalt not steal. Seems pretty straightforward. But we're also told, Thou shalt not covet. The stealing is what we do with our hands. The coveting is the root of that in our hearts. Wanting what someone else has, wanting what I don't have, that's not the mind of Christ. Notice this. The regenerate mind values what Christ values. The regenerate mind values what Christ values. When you and I think of stealing, most of us don't think of ourselves. We think of the, the robber. Now, we all look like robbers with our COVID masks, right? Especially if you're wearing a bandana. We all look like a bunch of train robbers. We think of that. The, the robber, the pickpocket, maybe the crooked politician, Maybe our neighbor who took that tool and never gave it back. Some of you are real passionate about that, right? Some of you are real convicted. You need to go train that tool back over to your neighbor. But we would never do those things. We're not thieves, right? But there are countless ways we steal and cheat to gain the upper hand, to make just a little bit more money, or, as we like to say it, to get what's ours, to get what we've got coming to us. It's okay for me to cheat on my taxes because the government's gouging us anyway. It's okay for me to not claim that because it's not fair that they should be taxing me. All I'm getting is what's mine. All I'm doing is, is what seems fair to me. You know, that's how they lived in the book of Judges, by the way. And throughout that book of failure, God reminds us that during that time, each person did what was right in their own eyes. The conscience was their guide rather than the word of God. There is an objective standard. When I get the wrong change and it comes out really profitable for me and I just, you know, I just kind of neglect to give it back. I'm not being straight, am I? That too is stealing. The regenerate mind values what Christ values. We might not think of these things, but there are so many different ways for us to steal. Because of greed, selfishness, covetousness in our hearts. Paul here is condemning stealing as if it's a fairly normal thing for his audience. He's not saying those strange outliers, I mean, look, look at what he says. Just read it. As he's saying this, <clears throat> excuse me, anyone who's been stealing must steal no longer. Instead, you need to be working. You need, be, need to be doing something useful, making some money for yourself so that you have something to share with those in need. The whole tone of this is that it's pretty prevalent. 
Now, I don't know what kind of stealing he's talking about, but he's obviously talking about some sort of covetous, selfish attitude that says, I need to get what's mine, and maybe just a little bit of yours, too. That kind of attitude does not fit the Christ follower. He's condemning this in the church. Stealing seems to be normal. Those who do it, he's clearly assuming here that there's more than just a few, have to stop because it doesn't fit. And notice the second part. Instead of stealing, it's not, it's not just don't steal. Don't steal. Instead, work. But notice what he says about the work. Do it so that you may share with those in need. That's pretty significant. Because I can work really hard. I can be really good at my job and still have the attitude of a thief. I can still, in my right to my property, cling to this idol of greed so much that I'm working and working and being very diligent so that I can store up more in my storehouse. But the call of the Christ follower is to have open hands, to hold everything loosely so that we are earning so that we can share. Dave Ramsey makes a pretty big point of that in the, in the final uh, session of his Financial Peace University. I highly recommend it at some point coming up. Hopefully very soon we'll be offering that here. It's money well spent. But the final aspect that he puts in place here is not just to, to do as he constantly says on his radio program, to live like no one else so that later you can live like no one else. But ultimately the goal, the purpose, is to live like no one else so that you can live like no one else so that you can give like no one else. If I'm broke, I can't give anything. If you have a need and I'm poor... I can't meet your need. So it's not a matter of just not stealing. It's working, trying actually to profit. Oh my goodness, Christians are supposed to make a profit? Yes, but the purpose of a profit for a Christ follower is to reflect the values of Christ and how I handle it. If it's just so I can have a bigger house, a nicer car, a better cable package, a little faster Wi-Fi, so I can have everything better and better and better for me, then I am not valuing what Christ values. Again, the regenerate mind values what Christ values. What does it mean when I say regenerate mind? The mind that has been born again and regenerated in Christ. Your mind is no longer powered, if you will, by your flesh. It is now powered, it is generated through the Spirit. This is the power of the mind of Christ in a believer. In James 4.3, and talking about, you don't have to turn there right now, but in talking about prayer, James says, you you kill and you covet because you want and you don't have. You should be asking God. But when you ask God, when you pray, you don't receive what you pray for because your motives are off. 
You're praying so that you can spend it on yourself. God, give me more. God, I need. God, I want. God, give me more. Well, if God's purpose in giving it to you is so that you can distribute it in his name for his glory to take care of others, to show hospitality, to entertain strangers, to feed the needy, to spread the word, and it's sitting in your bank account, or it's sitting in that new set of furniture that you just bought on credit so you could get more stuff for yourself, then why would he give you more? if you're not stewarding what he's already given you. Now we'll develop this further in coming weeks, but don't hear me saying that you should not have stuff. Hear me saying loudly and clearly, stuff should not have you. This is the point that he is making. Don't steal. That's obviously bad. But more than that, work. Work hard. Earn a living. Earn a good living. Earn the best living you can so that you can take care of those in need. I love seeing a true Christian make lots and lots and lots of money. How do you know they're a true Christian? Because that money doesn't stay in their hand that long. It's going out. It's caring for others in Jesus' name. That's a powerful, powerful thing. Notice this. When I allow my actions to be driven by selfishness, I'm not walking worthy of who I am in Christ. When I allow my actions to be driven by selfishness, I am not walking worthy of who I am in Christ. Let's talk about unloading unwholesome talk. Uh-oh. Hopefully somebody's convicted right now. Dumping dishonesty, removing resentment, getting rid of greed, unloading unwholesome talk. Verses 29 to 30. Paul writes, <clears throat> Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. There's a lot of, uh, a lot of speculation on the meaning of verse 30 and grieving the Holy Spirit. Let me submit to you a very clear and obvious thing that none of us should miss, but most of us seem to tend to. This is clearly tied to the unwholesome talk. It's flowing right out of this. It's not related to some other disconnected thing as Paul is saying let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouths but only that which is helpful for building up don't grieve the Holy Spirit we break God's heart we break God's heart with the way we talk mark this down it breaks God's heart when my words do not reflect him it breaks God's heart when my words do not reflect him. I'm a Christian, but I cuss a little. I hear that all the time in church. I see it on Facebook. I see it on mugs and t-shirts and bumper stickers. And people think it's cute. I don't think anything is cute that breaks God's heart. Really? I'm a Christian, but I cuss a little? 
Now, don't get me wrong. The majority of people sitting in this room or watching online probably have a few words that slip out of their mouths now and then that you don't want. Sometimes we say things that are inappropriate. We don't even realize they're inappropriate. It's not what I'm talking about. But when that is okay with you, you've lost the plot. When we celebrate sin, any sin, we are living a life that is antithetical to the life of Christ. So don't condemn those who support a, a gay pride parade. Don't condemn those people if you're celebrating foul language from a Christian mouth. Both things break the heart of God. It breaks God's heart when my words do not reflect him. I saw a t-shirt at a store here locally. I showed it to my daughter. She shook her head and walked away because even at that time, my 13-year-old daughter knows the stupidity of a shirt that says, church on Sunday, cussing on Monday. Real cute. It's become a popular thing in recent years to embrace coarse language as no big deal to God. I even hear preachers who think they're relating to people. I'm going to help God out by using coarse language. Or the, the so much more intellectual version of this, language is a human construct. So cussing is arbitrary. God doesn't care about the words that come out of your mouth because it's a human con construct. Let me throw a human construct at you. Poppycock. This is garbage. Of course language is a human construct used by humans to convey thoughts with meaning. And it influences our lives. It influences our culture. When you hang around a foul mouth, you develop a foul mind. I can tell you this from personal experience. I never had a problem with swearing growing up. It wasn't how I was raised. I had lots of other problems. That wasn't one of them. With a few short exceptions when I thought it was cool. When I was in basic training, how many of you are veterans and been through basic training? We got, got some folks? You know what I'm talking about. When I was in basic training, it seemed like every other word that I heard started with a certain letter. Started with a, the letter F. They weren't talking about fairness and fault. And I heard that so much that at a certain point, I was in casual conversation as we were uh, getting ready for formation. And that word slipped out of my mouth and I didn't even know it. I didn't even notice it. It was not a word that I used. But it came out of my mouth and the reason I knew it is because everybody around me stopped and stared. They said, hey, Rev, don't say that. They used to call me that in basic. I wasn't a preacher. But anyway. But it came out of me and I didn't even know it was in me. The things that we put into our minds get into our hearts and the mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. We need to make choices. I'm spending a little more time here than what I wanted to. We'll, we'll come back to this in future weeks. 
But we need to develop a mentality that says, no, my mouth has been redeemed by the blood of Christ. And I will use my words, whether spoken, written, or posted on social media, in a way that glorifies and honors him. When I use them loosely, coarsely, in a foul manner, or in putting people down with sniping words of making fun of people and quick downs that you know we just saw with the magic cure of, oh, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no offense. Nothing's more offensive than that. It's automatically offensive, by the way, if you say no offense. Just no before you ever say it. You've already been offensive. When we use our words that way, we make God sad. We grieve the Holy Spirit. It breaks his heart to see his own children with the same kind of unclean lips as the pagan and heathen world around them, reflecting the character of the world, the flesh, and the devil, instead of reflecting the reality of Christ. As we wrap up this point, turn to James 3. Moving to the right, toward the back of your book. James chapter 3. I'm going to start with a, a couple of verses from James 1, then we'll look at the chapter of James 3. In James 1, verses 26 and 27, he says, Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves. And their religion is worthless. He goes on to say that God, that God our Father accepts this kind of religion as pure and faultless. To look after orphans and widows in their distress. And to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Very often that pollution shows up in our mouth. Jump to the beginning of chapter 3. It's interesting that... James begins this section as he talks about the tongue by saying, Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. Those who teach, those who lead, whatever that is, whether that's a pastor, a president, community leader, the things that we say, the things that come out of our minds and our hearts, whether in words or in writing or on social media, these things reflect the overflow of our hearts. And those who are in leadership positions are held accountable by God for this. We all are, but notice that those who teach, those who lead, will be judged more strictly. In other words, it's a weightier thing. It's a bad thing for any Christian to not have control of their tongue. It's a worse thing for an overseer or pastor to not have control of their tongue. That's, that's the point he's making there. Verse 2, we all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. And then he develops that idea. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they're steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. 
The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. And notice what he says in this last portion here. Verse 9, with the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father. And with it, we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. Neither can a clean heart produce a foul mouth. When, I, when my words fail to build others up to the glory of God, I'm not walking worthy of who I am in Christ. When my words fail to build others up to the glory of God, I am not walking worthy of who I am in Christ. I'm going to wrap this up with Paul's verses here that show a contrast. Contrast of trash and treasure. As we see this contrast at the end, there is a... a there's a very distinct difference between our old self and our new self. We need to remove the old and replace it with the new. It's already been made true of us, but we have to do something about it. Walking worthy is not merely a matter of religious binding back of our behaviors, but of actively doing. Actively doing the things that reflect the character and nature of Christ. A sports team doesn't win by merely eliminating errors. It has to actually score. Sometimes as Christ followers, we have gotten trapped in the religious notion of don't do this and don't do that. That's why in a very similar passage to this in Colossians, Paul kind of makes the opposite point. They're being... Uh, being attacked by false teaching that's leading them in a way of being concerned about other people judging them according to worldly standards, according to legalism. And he's making the same case with the same motives in Colossians, and he says, since you've been raised with Christ, you've been reborn, you're new, you've, been, you've got this new self, why are you still thinking like the world? Why are you still letting people judge you according to the flesh? It's not who you are anymore. We sometimes get so caught up on not doing wrong that we forget to do right. It's really important if we're going to be holy, if we're going to be set apart for God, if we're going to live a life worthy of the calling that we've received. Walking worthy involves actively living in a way that reflects Christ. 
not just being the good religious boy or girl who doesn't smoke, doesn't chew, doesn't go where girls get do, all that kind of stuff. No. That's, that's not what this is about. It's bigger. It's more. It's grander. Everything we see in verses 25 to 32 springs from the platform of verses 22 to 24. As Paul has called the believers to put off the old self and to gain a new way of thinking and to put on the new self. He doesn't just say put off the old self. You have to also put on the new self. The rest of chapters 4 and 5 detail what that looks like. And here he gives a kind of, of summary statement. This summary statement is taking out the trash in verse 31 and clothing yourself with the treasure of verse 32. Let's read those together. <clears throat> verse 31, get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Get rid of that. That garbage is stinking up your house. Get it out. Instead, clothe yourself with the treasure of verse 32. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. The thought continues into chapter 5. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Out with the old, in with the new. When I've been reborn by trusting and following Christ, Jesus has already made this the reality of who I am, but I must walk in it. Our memory verse for today is Galatians 5.16. You'll see it in your programs there. Paul says to the Galatian church, So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. He says the same thing to the Roman church. He's saying the same thing to us. When I'm walking by the Spirit, when I'm being guided by the presence of God in my life, according to the new nature He's put in me, He has settled my future and sealed it with His Holy Spirit presence so that the Holy Spirit in me is a deposit, a down payment, if you will, guaranteeing the full inheritance that is mine in Christ that I will receive in the day of His consummation when I will be fully conformed to the likeness of Christ. That is the destiny of every believer. If you are in Christ, you have been predestined to be fully conformed to his likeness. That's pretty good. In the meantime, I have to choose to take out the trash. In Christ, my old self has no hold on me. So I must no longer live as its slave. But I must choose to stop living like a slave. There came a time in American history when slavery had been abolished. And there were no more slaves. But thousands upon thousands of people knew no other way of life. And while they were not slaves by definition, by sovereign decree, if you will, their lifestyle still looked a lot like it because they were holding on to those shackles that they no longer had on them. They were living for masters that no longer owned them. They were thinking 
an old slave life. Don't be mistaken, there were enemies working really hard to keep them in that slave life, to keep them down, to keep them thinking like who they were rather than who they are. And you and I have enemies today doing the same thing. The world, the flesh, and the devil conspire to get us to continue to feel the shackles, to feel the, the, the enslavement that is no longer ours so that we will walk according to the flesh as the slaves we used to be. It is simultaneously true that God has settled my destiny in Christ and that my choices determine my destiny. Both things are true. If I'm in Christ, that's not from me, that's from God, and He's already settled it. I don't have to fear losing it. I didn't earn it. I can't unearn it. I don't have to fear God changing His mind. He's not like us that He should do that. God holds firm. I don't have to worry that, that I don't have enough faith to, to hold on to God. He's holding on to me. It was never me in the first place. But I do have to recognize that as a person still living on this planet, my daily choices determine my destiny. I need to choose to no longer walk as a slave, to no longer think the way I used to think. I have to choose to live like who I truly am in Christ. I have to choose to disregard the internal feelings of the shackles that are no longer there. I have to choose to remember who I am and all that it means. If I'm going to build my life on Christ, I need to recognize that it means taking out the trash of my old dead life so that it doesn't stink up my new life as a child of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we, uh, as we close our service today with song, may we not forget what we have seen in your word. Lord, I recognize that there's no amount of exegesis or preparation that I can do that will change hearts. I just have to tell the truth. Your Holy Spirit does the rest. So, Father, take our dry bones and breathe on them. Bring us to real, meaningful, powerful life in Christ. As your Spirit flowing through, through us causes us to reflect the reality of who Jesus is and the relationships that you give us. We pray these things in his name.